good evening and welcome to season 2 episode 11 of Straight Talking English. As ever I am your host Catherine here to talk you through the various attributes of your GCSE lit texts whether you are studying them, whether you are teaching them or whether you are straight up just kind of interested in Shakespeare. So we looked at violence last time and the other big theme in Romeo and Juliet clearly is love because we always think of Romeo and Juliet as a love story. We need to think back a little bit to courtly love, the medieval tradition of elevating the person you love, worshipping them, putting them on a pedestal. A key work that might give us a little bit of background is by this poet called Petrarch. He was a Renaissance Italian poet who was hugely, hugely influential and created this fashion for sonnets, which I'm going to come on to in just a sec. Petrarch's main sequence of sonnets is in a book called Canzoniere, and I'm taking a lot of my inspiration today from a book called Renaissance Literature and Culture by Lisa Hopkins and Matthew Stegall. They say the situation outlined in this sequence is as follows. The speaker is in love with a woman, Laura, whom he, ha- he hardly knows. The woman is far superior to him in social class. She is herself a paragon of chaste virtue and she does not return his love for her. He loves her or he loves the idea of her to the point of religious adoration. Indeed, during the sonnet sequence, Laura dies, causing a religious conversion in the speaker of the Canzoniera who converts his love for Laura into his love for God. Another legacy of Petrarchanism is that a sexual love is often figured in a form of religious love. So religious love can be figured in poems and terms that make it resemble sexual love. So for this tradition of courtly love, the unrequited passion that you have for this person is almost a kind of religious worship. In 1961, the writer Siegel said in Romeo and Juliet, the medieval and renaissance concept that sexual love is a manifestation of the cosmic love of God, which holds together the universe in a chain of love and imposes order on it, acts as a nexus between two doctrines. This is it. Like, love is everything, whether you feel a lustful desire, whether it's faith. For these lyrically minded Petrarchan people, including Shakespeare, or at least he's playing on that, or at least appears to, it is everything. Love is all around us and so the feeling grows. There was a huge example of this in Elizabethan England, directly centred around Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, the Fairy Queen, aka what we can call today the Cult of Elizabeth. Back to Hopkins and Stegall, Petrarchan poetry really came into its own during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, in partly because Elizabeth liked to figure her courtiers utter dependence on her as a form of courtly love relationship. So the relationship of a courtier to the Queen was easily assimilated to the relationship between the Petrarchan lover and his permanently unattainable beloved. Elizabethan men spent a lot of time thinking about the sensation of being servant to an 
all-powerful woman. And while we see echoes of this in Romeo's behaviour towards love at the start, this was not supposed to be serious. In real life, this was supposed to be a bit of a, a game, a to and fro. Romeo does, apparently, or at least on first glance, tend to take it seriously. The imagery in the balcony scene, by the way, where Juliet is like, I wish you were a little bird on a string and you could just hop around and be my pet directly comes from something that was said about Elizabeth I. She kept this hanger on, this noble duke, this French guy who wanted to marry her and she just kept him hanging on, hanging on. And the imagery that was popularly used was of like she had a bird on a string so this poor duke of Anjou became pictured everywhere as being a bird, a little bird. And that is a hundred percent definitely how like it's definitely that was where that image comes from. I mean, I'm loath to say anything definite about this, but there you go. So when we first meet Romeo, he is in the deep, deep grip of courtly, unrequited love for the fair Rosaline. And it is really, really easy to say, well, this is our representation of, of courtly love, or at least idealised love. But actually, we can argue that Romeo himself doesn't really believe it. He's saying these lines in a very structured way, almost like he's learned it off by heart, because the way that Shakespeare is written this is like word for word from somewhere else. The writer Mahmood, writing in 1957, says Romeo's infatuation with Rosaline is a form of posturing that Romeo himself already realises to be foolish. He dutifully recites popular Petrarchan cliches, love is a sickness, religious worship, war and conquest, yet the density and exaggeration of these tropes suggest they are not to be taken seriously, especially since they're undercut by Romeo's decidedly unromantic concern for his stomach. Where shall we dine? So we tend to take that bit seriously in Act 1, Scene 1, like he's so lovesick, but if we're working on this theory that the first half of the play is intended to be a comedy, it shouldn't be seen as Romeo, oh my unrequited love. We should see it more as kind of a pantomime thing. Oh, roses are red, violets are blue. I really love you. Oh, let's go to Macca's. Like, just think of it like he's interrupted from his cliches to go get some nuggets. Which, actually, I've just had my dinner because I tend, I just tend to live on the nuggets when I'm at work and I'm working quite a lot at the moment. But we can also see love in this as destruction. The love that Romeo and Juliet feel is always going to be destructive. And in fact, Romeo desires the self-destruction from this first crush. And that can be read if we look even just like below the surface of his posing over Rosaline. That is what he's looking for. He wants this all-conquering love that, you know, better to burn out than to fade away and all that. Which, by the way, was from uh, Kurt Cobain's Suicide Note and it's a Neil Young lyric and it's also one of my favourite quotes ever. But the 
with the fact this is supported and this isn't just me rambling on about 70s rock stars is because there's a recurring motif of gunpowder and what does gunpowder do it explodes kaboom that, that was me doing an explosion right was it good caroline spurgeon writing in 1935 says shakespeare saw the story in its sweet and tragic beauty as an almost blinding flash of light suddenly ignited and swiftly quenched this attitude carries on and on similes and metaphors of ignited gunpowder capture the frantic passion romeo imagines that his the sound of his name in act three scene three is shot from the deadly level of a gun romeo has a go um sorry the friar has a go at romeo again in act three scene three by saying like powder in a skillless soldier's flask is set afire by thine own ignorance and when romeo goes to the creepy apothecary in act five scene one he wants something that as violently as hasty powder fire doth hurry from the fatal cannon's womb this explosive structure is also supported by the time tricks that shakespeare plays on us he's compressed everything down into five days so it has to explode juliet's worried that it's too rash too unadvised too sudden too like the lightning which doth cease to be a one can say it lightens when Romeo proposes, the friar warns that these violent delights have violent ends and in their triumph die like fire and powder which as they kiss consume. This imagery so subtly is built up over time. Think back to what I said last time about violence, military revolution, we've got handheld pistols. This is a high-tech idea and people are getting familiar with this idea that the small explosion igniting more, that can be a really effective metaphor. If we're talking about recurring images of destruction, well, we can argue that they're death marked from even the prologue. But this is built up in these recurring images of death as Juliet's bridegroom. So whenever she she talks about marriage, it's linked to marrying death. Mahmoud again in 1957. A light motif of the play is death as Juliet's bridegroom first appears when Juliet sends to find Romeo's name. If he be married, my grave is like to be my wedding bed. Okay, okay I'm just gonna stop for a second. Like, I really love my partner. He's awesome. But if when I met him, I said, if you're not single, I'm gonna lie on a grave. I honestly, I feel like it's a bit over the top. I mean, I did only meet him when I was 30. I mean, if I'd have met him as a teenager, I don't know, maybe, but you know, I'm just gonna lie here on this grave. Alright, 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 it's fiction, I know it's fiction. But at the news of Romeo's banishment, Juliet cries, and death, not Romeo, take my maidenhead. So maidenhead literally is hymen, like take my virginity. And she begs her mother, rather than to compel her to marry Parrot, to make that bridal bed in that dim monument where Tybalt lies. Again, she's well insistent, she wants to go to sleep on a gravestone, and I mean, I've slept on some comfortable-ish floors, but like cold stone. I mean, it rains in Italy. Whatever, back to my mood. 
The theme grows too persistent to be mere dramatic irony. O oh, son, the night before thy wedding day hath death lain with thy wife. There she lays, flowered as she was, deflowered by him. Death is my son-in-law, death is my heir, my daughter he hath wedded. Deflowered again is a reference to losing someone's virginity. I'm going to come back to the sexual love in a bit. Romeo, gazing at the supposedly dead Juliet, could well believe that unsubstantial death is amorous and that Lena bore monster keeps thee here in dark to be his paramour most significant of all there is Juliet's final cry oh happy dagger this is thy sheath let rust and let me die where happy implies not only fortunate to me in being ready to my hand but also successful fortunate in itself and so suggests the further quibble on die death has long been Romeo's rival and enjoys Juliet at the last it's built up the whole way through marriage is death marriage is destruction. Like I said, it, whether we think they're death marked or not, I personally think the tragedy is built up through a series of coincidences and we only get this tragic turn at the end. But with these references to lover's death coming in from the start, this provides a good counter argument to what I'm doing, to my line of thinking, by saying actually is it destiny when Shakespeare has worked in this motif from the start? And if we're talking about lover's destruction, as I mentioned last time, everything in this play is set up as a bi binary, light and dark, male and female, Capulet Montague, and what's destroyed by the end is that binary. But things that are created as part of their love are endless sonnets. So what is a sonnet? I bet you know, everyone knows what a sonnet is, well you have if I ever taught you because I bang on about them. Sonnets are a form of poem, 14 lines long, with an A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E-F-G-G Rhyme scheme They're written in iambic pentameter which means 10 syllables to a line every other syllable stressed Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And Shakespeare wrote blooming loads of them that's like his thing he was famous for but they're all identical in form they're not normally spontaneous Frequently they're arranged in what's called a blazon which is a list of attractive features. I love your eyes and your shiny eyebrows, mate. There you go, that's the first line of my sonnet about my partner. Uh, he doesn't really have shiny eyebrows, but I was trying to do a line and I hadn't really prepared this. Uh, this is what he gets, he's Mr. Shiny now. But Shakespeare's using this tradition of a blazon and also uses it in a reactionary way so that he's more truthful or he gives the illusion of more truth while still being part of this conceit. When Romeo and Juliet first meet in what I call the weird flirting scene, oh dear saint, palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss, they spontaneously form a sonnet. Whether this is realistic, I'd like, I don't know, but it's a device that Shakespeare has used before in Much Ado About Nothing to show a connection between two people as they form a sonnet together. Usually the form of a, usually the subject of a sonnet is romantic love, which fits in with the iambic pentameter because iambic pentameter resembles 
silence. The beating of your heart. Da-dum, 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 da-dum. So it can be seen as metaphorically. Their hearts are beating in unison. Let's talk a little bit about more about what people thought love would be like. So, obviously, things were a bit different 400, 500 years ago, but not actually that much different. In this play, according to Harry Levin, Shakespeare stages various contraventions of convention, such as when Romeo overhears Juliet's soliloquy having broken into the Capulet Garden, but also contextualises the action in a world saturated with formal artifice, as when the couple meet in the ceremonious conditions of the Capulet Ball and formalise their first conversation in the shape of a sonnet. So... We're kind of getting into this vibe of like, actually, there is only one way to really speak to your partner. You've got to have this like very formalized language. They meet in a very formal way. And to a certain extent, that is what what you'd expect. So you want to get married in Elizabethan times? Good for you. You can only really marry after you can maintain a household of your own. So if you can't really afford to get a house and have nice things in it, like, don't bother. While you can get engaged at any age. So, for example, Henry VIII's brother got engaged at age two. But that's not an engagement as we see it now. It's not like, you know, you've lived with your partner for ages, like, you meet as adults. It's more like a contract, like an arrangement. You can get married at 12 if you're female, and I think it's 14 for males, but that's considered really, really weird. You only became legally an adult at 21, and the average age to get married was 24 for girls and 26 for boys. Generally, once you'd completed your apprenticeship, the consent to get married is not based on an engagement ring. It's a verbal contract. If you both say, I really love you and want to be with you forever, that means contracted marriage, which means you're basically married. And this is where some of the traditions that we see now come from. Because if you've got a verbal contract with someone else, that is when, at the wedding ceremony, the priest would say, does anyone have any objections? Because that's where someone can say, oh, you've been contracted to me. The well, also a very practical reason is if you have a verbal contract, then there is no issue in, uh, what is it? I was trying to think of it, consummating your marriage. And in fact, a third of brides were pregnant before their wedding ceremony. The church prohibited this, but everyone kind of just seemed to ignore it. Some people did marry in secret, but generally your parents would be involved. For example, in 1594, Thomas Thin and Maria Touche were a couple who got married in secret. But Juliet's fight with her dad is far more plausible. In 1520, a girl called Joan Stevens asked for her father's permission to marry a boy he didn't approve of. And he shouted, Void harlot, get out of my sight! as recorded in his diary, which just means you are a woman of ill repute, get out! <laughs> Once you knew the guy was interested in you, you might get jewellery, money, clothes, gloves were a popular gift, but no engagement ring. You did not get bling, unfortunately. But what you've got 
is a lot of the conventions are shown in Romeo and Juliet because they consider themselves to be contracted from the second they both say, I love you, I want this, which is the conventional way to do it. But they have a mutual shared love. It's not one person approaching the other. Kin and Ryan, writing in 2002, says the celebration of mutuality within love is as much a part of the play's message as the more widely recognised vindication of the right to love whoever one chooses, regardless of arbitrary prohibitions or prejudice. Of course, the lovers themselves are unable to escape the fatal discourse of Verona. They are caged in a culture which precludes the survival of such emancipated love. So yeah, we could see this as a celebration of treating your partner like an equal because they both do want to be together. I can't really do a podcast in love without talking about the sexual side of their love because it is quite unusual for the time. Because I've only ever taught this play before talking to you about it on the podcast, I've kind of glossed over the sex bits. Because if you're standing in front of a room of 14-year-olds, you really don't want to be talking about Mercutio's D-jokes. But reading this is kind of interesting. And it's kind of interesting because Julia is very, very keen to lose her virginity. And she's very, very keen to lose it to Romeo. What's strange is that that Juliet is openly expressing sexual desire. According to Catherine Belsey, she wants a consummation figured as pure sensation, sightless, speechless organisms in conjunction, flesh on flesh, independent of the signifier. But the idea that she has hood to my unmanned blood baiting in my cheeks with thy black mantle it is just a fantasy in the speech where she's waiting for night to come to be with romeo it's really highly sexual and she is really keen for him to stay the night which would not be expected but for romeo and juliet while the color of love you might think is like red hearts i don't know like pink roses for them it's always linked to darkness love is pure darkness and sexual love is pure darkness okay okay i feel like i've read this somewhere this is supposed to be a metaphor for orgasm like think of the french phrase petit more so orgasm the little death dark funeral that's what they mutually want romeo very very much wants to get with juliet his love for rosaline was very idealized religious very sexless and pure but he looks at juliet and he talks about the vest- vestal livery of the moon. Vestal livery is what um, an ancient Roman priestess would wear, the kind that had to remain virgins their whole life. And he's saying, get rid of your virgin outfit. <laughs> like, okay, okay, this, this, I really don't even want to Google virgin outfit because I think it'll be like a roll neck or something. Thing. but like Romeo wants this he wants a physical connection the first half of the play the comic half is full of sex jokes it's setting this play up to be kind of a light-hearted rom-com 
their desire, their physical desire for each other is the foremost driver of their relationship in my mind. We can see it as a meeting of two minds. We can see it as this mutual instant affection. But actually, they have this very physical connection. It's not purely cerebral, which is, to round this off, the opposite to what the ideal Elizabethan relationship would be. The idea is you get married first and you develop an affection, a fondness for each other over time. The Romeo and Juliet gunpowder relationship is the opposite to what many, many people would be looking for, especially something that's too rash, too well considered and based solely, in my opinion, on sexual desire. On that note, and I can't believe that I have finally managed to talk about the uh, the other aspects of this play without getting the giggles and without anyone shouting from the back of the classroom this is a good day str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkenglish.com spotify soundcloud itunes stitcher and Castbox, and any of these other scrubbing services if you find me on another one let me know so i want to know how far my tendrils have reached it's been a pleasure as always next episode is on the bad boys of verona we are talking about romeo tibble and mercutio bad boys bad boys what you gonna do i will see you next time have a lovely lovely evening